This week on The Meg Rock Show, I sat down with Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia is a nurse practitioner, an intermittent fasting and nutrition expert, and a two-time TEDx speaker. She's passionate about helping women find wellness through the healing power of nutrition and fasting. We talk a lot about her new book that's amazing that launches March 15th, and you're going to want to get your hands on it and pre-order it now because you can be a part of some really cool things, including a class that she's going to be teaching and diving more into things that you're not going to be able to get in the book. In her book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, she has a 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow down the aging process. Who doesn't want that? In this episode, we talk about sleep and how important it is to get sleep and how important it is to take care of your body and to fuel it the right way. And what we did in our 20s will no longer work for us as women in our 40s and our 50s. You guys are going to absolutely love this episode. Welcome to the Meg Rock Show with Manifesting Marge, enlightening you with high vibe spiritual guidance, interviews with high vibe people, and those who practice different healing modalities around the world. I help women manifest more love, more self love, more money, better health, and clarity on their life path. My purpose is to help you remember who the f- you are. Let's rock this out. Welcome, Cynthia. I'm so excited to have you on the Meg Rock Show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been excited to connect with you. Yeah, so fasting is is all, all the rage this day and age. I feel like I hear people talking about intermittent fasting or being out with friends, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is what I did, and this is what changed my life. And then I've also started hearing about the health benefits of not feeding our body food all the time and letting our body you know, burn what's there and, and, and even self heal. There's, that's a big part of fasting too. So tell me about your story. How in the world did you end up where you are today? And then I want to hear about this amazing book, the intermittent fasting transformation. Thank you. Yeah, no. So I'm trained as a traditional allopathic Western medicine nurse practitioner. And I worked in ear medicine as a nurse and then later 16 years in cardiology as a nurse practitioner. And so been an interesting trajectory. I always remind people that what got me initially so interested in how food is medicine was having a child who was uh, diagnosed with life-threatening food allergies, which completely changed the way I viewed the entire world. Naively up until that point, I thought, oh, you know, everything's pretty benign, anything we find in a grocery store. And so my older son, who's now 16, uh, was diagnosed with life-threatening peanut and tree nut allergies when he was about two years old. And so the allergist left me with the uh, guidance of carrying up pen and pray, which didn't exactly uh, make me comfortable as a mom. And so I spent many years making his own food. Yeah, 15 years ago, there just weren't the resources that are available now. Thankfully, the, the uh, food industry is becoming more cognizant and aware of the impact of these food choices. So you know, my son's food allergies got me started on a path. I then read a book called The Unhealthy Truth by Robin O'Brien and like to credit that with really changing the trajectory of my career. I got very interested in the net impact of USDA food regulations, the processed food industry, the net impact on our health vis-a-vis, you know, looking through the eyes, not only as a clinician, but also as a mom. And so that started the journey. I started a PhD program, which I hated. And then I did a wellness coaching program, which I was kind of like, meh. And then I read another book called Eat the Yolks, and that changed everything. I reached out to the young woman who wrote the book. I said, this is completely contradictory to everything I learned in in my medical training. 
where did you learn your training? And so I dove down the rabbit hole of a functional nutrition program. And then ultimately I left clinical medicine six years ago. And so part of that decision to leave clinical medicine, really being tired of writing a lot of prescriptions, not really focused on a root cause approach to health and wellness was also transected with me hitting the wall of perimenopause. And so a lot of what got me interested in fasting initially was just for myself because I'd never had a weight problem. I'd never struggled with weight gain, um, not during pregnancies, not after pregnancies. And then all of a sudden I was doing all the wrong things as a 40 ish year old woman over exercising, probably a little too low carb, not enough sleep, wrong types of exercise, super stressful job husband who did a lot of international travel. And so I came to intermittent fasting out of curiosity for myself. And then I realized that it was such a profoundly powerful strategy. It needed to be something I was talking to my patients about. And so that really literally bled into the work that I was doing. And then ultimately led to doing some talks that, you know, really got me on a a stage talking to people and having a larger impact than just being in the hospital or the office. And I'm, I'm so glad that I made that shift, but that's exactly how I came to fasting. It was an end of one uh, initial curiosity on my own, and then realizing this really could be beneficial for my patients and friends and clients to consider as well. So for those listening that have never really heard of intermittent fasting and are new to the concept, what is the easiest way for you to explain it? Oh, easiest way is eat less often. You know, the word fasting can be very triggering, And so when I explain to people that really what intermittent fasting is, is eating less often, that's a much less offensive way of describing what you're doing. You eat within a prescribed time period and you fast the rest of the time. And most of that time is spent sleeping. So it's not nearly as insurmountable as a lot of people believe that it can be. And I find for many, many people, once they start fasting, they feel so much better. They're like, I would never go back to eating three meals a day, snacks and mini meals and have the same level of cognition and energy and just feeling so much better. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is your belief system around fasting? Cause I know there's kind of different ways to look at it. Are you looking, are you looking at it from like a daily approach or are there some days that you truly fast for 24 hours? Cause I know there's some people who they fast one day a week completely. Mm-hmm. Well, I fast daily. Uh, It could be 15 hours one day and 20 the next. I might do one 24-hour fast a week. I do believe much, you know, I would say monogamy is good, but we don't want to fast the same way every day. We don't want to eat the same exact foods every day. We don't want to exercise the same way. And so our bodies really thrive on variety. And once someone has gotten to the point with their fasting that they're fat adapted, meaning that their body can flex between using carbohydrates or fats for fuel source. And we want to be able to be able to go back and forth between both uh, systems. Then you can really start to play around with those fasting and feeding windows. Now, a lot depends on what life stage you're in. A woman that's in her peak fertile years is going to fast differently than a menopausal woman. And so I think you have to take your physiology into account. I always say women should never have to apologize for being different than men but we should also embrace what makes us unique. And and for many of us up until the time that we go through menopause, we have to embrace the time period in our cycle to know when it is best to fast and when it is best to kind of back off on that strategy. So to answer your question, I think it really depends on someone's goals, what life stage they're in. I always say bioindividuality wins. And I think it's really important for us to kind of lean into that concept. So looking back over your life, when you were in that 
perimenopausal stage and you felt like you were doing it all wrong. What, what exactly looking back were you doing? It's a great question. Well, I have to remember, so I worked in cardiology. So I, even though I worked part-time, I had a very stressful job. Um, you know, I was managing very com- medically complex, sick patients. On top of that, I had two elementary school age kiddos and a husband who did a lot of international travel. So that's a lot of stress. I'm the kind of person that I was, I'm super efficient. So when the kids went to bed, I would, you know, get all the things done. So I probably was getting six hours a night of sleep, which is not enough. And then I would get up early in the morning and I would take these hardcore conditioning classes at the gym and then roll into like a busy work day. And I did that a lot. And on top of that, I had gone paleo, which was the right decision for me. I I absolutely believe for me, going paleo was the right decision, but probably too low carb. And and it was creating kind of the perfect storm. And I I say this to everyone that hormetic stress or stressors in our life have to be the right amount at the right time. And it was too much stress on my body, which in my twenties and thirties, I could handle all that. Mm -hmm. And in my early forties, my body was like timeout. We're in perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause. And the saddest part of all is I went to a leading research institution. I did all my medical training at Johns Hopkins. No one ever talked to me about perimenopause, my mom, my GYN, my nurse midwife, my girlfriends. None of us ever talked about this time frame. And I was as oblivious to what I needed to watch out for as the next person. Uh, a lot of the work that I now do is to really encourage women, like don't make the mistakes that I made. Um, obviously, I got my health back on track, but I think for many, many women that time period in their lives begins a time period where they start to feel like everything that used to work no longer works. You know, the mindset of, you know, exercise harder, eat less food, um, sleep when you're dead, um, restrict, 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 no longer works. It actually stresses your body more. And so I I think on every level, uh, I think it's important for us as uh, certainly the stage of life I'm in to be educating younger women so they know what to look out for. And so they can avoid some of the pitfalls I fell into. And in many ways, I think of perimenopause as a litmus test of how well you're taking care of yourself. I think most women, um, we give and give and give to everyone else in our lives. We worry about ourselves last. And it's a time when we really have to lean into finding small ways to support our body and to really practice self-love and really, you know, just taking time for ourselves. And it could be simple. I'm not saying everyone has to go on these, these expensive exotic trips and, and things like that. It could be, you know, walking in nature for 10 minutes a day. It could be as simple as going to bed 30 minutes earlier. It could be saying no. Uh, I'm a reformed people pleaser. And so I think it's really important as women that we honor where we are in time and space. And these are the wisdom years. You know, uh, Dr. Mitty Pelt said that to me recently. And I said, you know, that's absolutely correct. These are the wisdom years. We've learned a lot. It's time to apply what we've learned and to change habits that no longer work for us. So true. And I have the conversation around sleep with my friends so often. Mm -hmm. And it is crazy to me the amount that my friends do on admittedly so little sleep and they're not willing. They're, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know I need to sleep more, but they're not willing to change anything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, your body needs that sleep to heal to restore. And just like you said, what your body can handle in your twenties and your thirties is different than what it can handle in your forties and your fifties. So we can't run like we did when we were 20. No. And in fact, it's interesting. We, we moved um, during the pandemic and there was a group of women in my old neighborhood who were just these massive runners. And 
you know, in their twenties and thirties, it probably worked in their forties. They looked haggard. I'm like, you are not supposed to be running eight to 10 miles a day. You're just going to spike your cortisol. It is going to make things a whole lot harder to lose weight. Cause in their mind, they're like, I'm just going to run more running more is going to get that five pounds of fluff off. And I'm like, the best thing you could be doing is getting in the gym and lifting weights, you know, strength training muscles, the organ of longevity. And so I, I think on a lot of levels, it's the realization that we have to change our lifestyle habits mm -hmm. to be able to continue to remain you know, metabolically flexible. I talk a ton about metabolic flexibility. That's really what this is all about is that we don't want to be a statistic. I, I think the, the study that I've been referencing quite a bit as of late is from UNC in 2018. This is pre-pandemic that 88.2% of Americans are metabolically inflexible and it's no better now. It's probably closer to 90%. And so I tell people all the time that, you know, I don't want to be the outlier, but we have to make some tough decisions and some tough changes in order to turn that around because the, the net impact is not just on our generation, but on our children's generation, that we're going to end up being a very unhealthy population that's going to put an enormous drain on the healthcare system. And we're setting our kids up for failure. And that's a great concern. So on a lot of levels, I like women to understand there are things we can do proactively. This is not a doom and gloom conversation, really a, like, let's give you some good information so that you can make better choices moving forward. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about cycling. So what is cycling and how does the cycling versus non-cycling women, how do they need to fast differently? Mm -hmm. Well, so our menstrual cycle is an infradian rhythm. Uh, we'll just say statistically, you know, we'll say it's a 28 to a 30 day cycle. And for women that are peak fertile years, so I would say under the age of 35, their bodies are the most sensitive to, um, you know, missing nutrients in the diet. The average person is not missing food in their diet. So um, when someone has polycystic ovarian syndrome is struggling with infertility issues, they're obese, overweight, insulin resistant, they would really benefit from eating less frequently, but their bodies are going to be much more sensitive to changes in food frequency and food consumption. So when we look at the menstrual cycle, and this is a big oversimplification, we've got two major phases, um, the follicular phase when estrogen or estradiol predominates and then ovulation. And then after ovulation is the luteal phase when typically progesterone predominates. And in the follicular phase, you know, from the time bleeding starts um, until up until ovulation, um, you have much more flexibility. You can push your workouts. Um, you can do longer fasts. Typically you have much more flexibility. And then after ovulation, as you get closer to menstruation, usually the five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle, that's when we need to back off on on our fasting regimen. So maybe that you maybe just have digestive rest or 12 or 13 hours. And interestingly enough, I'm doing a webinar tonight and I was reading a statistic this afternoon that said, um, we as women consume 260% more refined carbs in our luteal phase. So this is a time when women can tolerate, um, can absolutely tolerate more carbohydrate in their diet, but usually an extra 100 or 150 calories. So we're not talking about a pint of ice cream and a bowl of pasta. It could really be like half a sweet potato is might be all the additional carbohydrate you need, you know, leading up into your menstrual cycle. So when we talk about cycling women, we're really talking about peak fertile years, perimenopause, because many women um, in perimenopause are still getting a cycle every month. Um, we are born with a finite amount of eggs. So unlike men that are replenishing sperm every three days, 
Uh, by the time we're at 35, 40, 45 years old, our eggs are as old as we are. And so we're not ovulating every month. We may get a menstrual cycle and may bleed every month, but not actually ovulate every month. And so I remind women that perimenopause is really that time where we have to kind of lean into the self-care. We have to, we have to really focus on sleep and stress management and anti-inflammatory nutrition and the right type of exercise. And if we're doing those things properly, we can add in fasting as another stressor, but it's really critically important that we really lean into the lifestyle piece. This is when people have to do the hard work. There's no pill that's going to fix all of this. It really is doing the work. Um, and that is hard because we have conditioned our patients to believe that a pill is going to fix everything. Like you don't have to change your diet. Just take this diabetes medication, this high blood pressure pill, um, this gout medication, when in the reality, it's far harder to make those lifestyle changes. So women can successfully fast during their cycling years. It's a little bit challenging, meaning we have to kind of work within the confines of knowing where we are in our menstrual cycle and honoring that we don't want to be fasting the week preceding our cycle. And then the beauty of menopause for women is all of a sudden, you know, we don't have as much fluctuation day to day, week to week. And so women oftentimes have an easier time fasting. They don't have to confound the variables around, you know, where are they in their menstrual cycle? I'm not suggesting that women are many men, many men at all, but menopausal women and men um, tend to have an easier time with fasting. It's been my clinical experience. They have an easier time with fasting because there's one less variable to have to think about. But obviously, again, the sleep, the stress, the anti-inflammatory nutrition, the right types of exercise are still critically important. I would say north of 40, the rules all change, not in a bad way, but you have to be much more conscientious. You know, the days of being able to kick back and eat a pizza at two o'clock in the morning and drink beer, those days are gone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and it, it makes me think of just like you're saying, there's, there's no pill to fix, you know, to, to fix everything. And there's, there's not a quick fix for anything. And, and we go through our life in these different stages and what worked in our twenties won't necessarily work in our thirties, won't work in our thirties, won't necessarily work in our forties, fifties, sixties on up. So we have to be willing to educate ourselves like what you're doing and saying, okay, this is what you need to be thinking about at this age, you know, at this stage of the game, because everything is always changing. I mean, you look at our kids and mm -hmm. you know, the way they snack and the way they ate and the way they slept. I mean, it's, we're always in different seasons and everything is changing and we have to be open and willing to adapt and be willing to change during those seasons because that's, I mean, that's truly life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's hard. You know, a lot of people grieve the fact that, maybe things aren't as they're perceived, not as easy. Like I jokingly talk about the fact that sleep is an art form at this stage of life. Like there's all these things that have to happen to make sure my sleep is like really dialed in because when I wake up in the morning and I look at my aura ring data, I want to know my deep and my REM sleep or where they're supposed to be because yeah. it can start my day off. And it's not an obsessive thing. It's just, it's really a check-in. I love data mm -hmm. you know, for the reason why I wear a continuous glucose monitor, but I'm much more conscientious. I'm much more mindful. I'm much more intentional at this stage of life than I was when I was blissfully ignorant to all these changes that were going to eventually yeah. come in my twenties and thirties. And, and I always say, you know, I'm glad that I had those experiences where I didn't have to think so much about all these different factors, but it is what it is. And I think it's, it's helpful for and reassuring for women to know like what's coming, like, what do yeah. I need as those hormonal fluctuations start in perimenopause? 
how does that manifest? What do I need to be thinking about? What do I need to be more intentional about? I think it's, it's very validating to know that what women are going through is normal. Um, you know, certainly I'll give you one example. Um, you know, as we start into perimenopause, our ovaries are producing less progesterone and progesterone is this kind of mellow hormone that helps with it, it helps reduce anxiety, less depression, um, also helps with sleep. And it can, when it's not buffered, it's not balanced with estrogen, you can have heavier menstrual cycles. And a lot of times the first thing that women start dealing with, they may have an uptick in anxiety. They may have heavier menstrual cycles. They may not sleep as well. And more often than not, what they're given are antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents, um, you know, they're offered synthetic hormones, they're offered an IUD, they're told maybe you need an ablation, uh, maybe you need to have a hysterectomy. And I know this because that was what was offered to me. <laughs> so I remember thinking, hey, time out, maybe we need to look at this a little bit differently. But I think it's important if, if a woman does opt for one of those options I just rattled off, that is totally okay. But it's also recognizing for a lot of other people, they may say, that's not what I want to do. What are my other options? What are the other things I can do? Each one of us, we're all bioindividuals. And I think each one of us need to honor where we are in time and space and what will work best for us. And I think it's, it's critically imperative that we stop the comparisonitis and we just support one another. We're like, whatever your choice is, if you say to your GYN, my periods are super heavy, I can't stand it. And you decide to do an ablation, that's Okay. If I choose not to, that's okay too. It depends on like what, you know, what, where's our tolerance? Like, where is the point at which we say time out? I can't do this anymore. Well, you'll appreciate the story. So I was also one of those people that the doctor said, oh, you should consider, you know, a cervical ablation and is it cervical or uterine? What is uterine. it? Uterine, yep. uterine ablation. Yep. And, um, and so I was like, uh-huh, I don't know. And, and I just know that God's first creator put everything in my body and made me the way I am for a reason. And the last thing I want to do is to surgically or um, medically alter my body if it's not if it's not necessary, if it's not critical, you know? And, um, so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to figure this out another way. So I started going to, um, an acupuncturist and interestingly enough, I had, um, we have, so we have two boys and before I had them, I had three miscarriages mm -hmm. and I was in my twenties. My husband's 10 years older than me. And my doctor said, you're way too healthy. Like something's going, you know, something's going on. I'm going to send you to a fertility specialist and I could get pregnant. But what, what happened was my body would start forming a blood clot behind the placenta and the baby would stop getting blood. So I was telling this to my acupuncturist because he was talking to me about the distribution of heat in my body. And he said, you know, the distribution of heat in your body is really off. He asked me if my hands were always cold, my feet were always cold. And I said, yeah. And so I went to a series of um, acupuncture sessions with him. And he said, so what's happening is in your abdomen, your abdomen is getting way too much heat because it's not distributed. The energy is not being distributed throughout your body. And so that's causing thick menstrual cycles. And I was going, oh my gosh, that's what was happening when I had all those miscarriages. What if I had just been going to an acupuncturist? I may have avoided having miscarriages. Who knows? But my point in saying that is, is yes, I've had plenty of friends who have had the uterine ablations. You know, I've even had friends who have had started at our age, started having hysterectomies. And if that's the route they want to take, totally fine. But looking at, I mean, everything you're talking about it's, it's working with what is already available to us naturally. 
And I think the easy thing is to just, you know, to go sign up for the procedure and to go get on the medication and just to do it, you know, the, the way the, the medical world tells you to do it, which is fine for some people, but there are other ways to do it. Mm-hmm. There are other ways to do it. And you're exactly right. I mean, I, I practice intermittent fasting, not consistently, but it has totally changed how I feel. And at 41, and I've never had a weight problem. I could pick a pro- couple areas that, that can tend to gain weight when I'm not paying attention, but I've never had a weight issue. And I feel so much better mm-hmm. about how I look, my energy level, even naps. I find that I take a lot less naps and I'm a lot less tired at three or four o'clock during the day when I'm fueling my body the right way. Yeah. And it's amazing. I mean, we don't talk to our patients enough about this. I, I think one of the things that I find the most surprising when I'm working with women is talking to them. I mean, I always say, forget about my plate, forget about the USDA food guide pyramid. I know all this crap and garbage we tell our kids in school, which is completely the antithesis of what it should be. I said, once you start fueling your body with a nutrient dense whole foods diet, and that might look different for each one of us, you're not going to need a nap because your blood sugar is better regulated. You're not going to get hungry in between meals because you're eating enough animal-based protein to keep yourself satiated, plenty of healthy fats, non-starchy vegetables, that you don't need to do that. And so I think it's really enlightening when all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. What I don't want to do is go back to where I was. You know, I stopped eating gluten 10 years ago and reversed an autoimmune issue I had had. And, you know, then I kind of, as I went through perimenopause, I added a couple more things that I eliminated. And when people hear, I don't eat gluten, grains, or dairy, they're like completely triggered. And I, and I added alcohol to it during the pandemic because I never was really a big drinker. And I realized it was the only thing that gave me hot flashes and messed up my sleep. And remember, I talked about how important sleep is to me. Yes. And so when I talked to people, they're like, oh my gosh, do you have any vices? And I was like, I'm pretty like right now I am pretty locked and loaded. Like I'm in a really good position. I sleep while I have plenty of energy. I can do all the things I want to do, but I probably go to bed earlier than I ever have. That's one of the blessings of the pandemic. I like leaned into what my body was telling me, but I'm like, there's no judgment. If you want to eat gluten, not you do you. If you want to drink alcohol, you do you. Although I do find for most women as they head into perimenopause, inflammatory foods become hugely problematic. And I think the pandemic in many ways, and I say this because I look through food diaries weekly for women, there's a lot of alcohol use going on. People are having trouble sleeping. So they have that glass of wine, don't wine after they put the kids to bed and they don't realize that our body processes alcohol very differently than it does protein, fat, or carbohydrates, that it suppresses melatonin, which is going to make it harder to sleep. And it increases cortisol will make it, you know, you get that kind of wired and tired and also dysregulate your blood sugar. So I, I think on a lot of levels that when you start talking to patients and talking to clients about what's happening in their bodies, like, again, you could buffer that in your twenties and thirties starts to shift. It can make people, it can allow people the opportunity to make better choices for them. Remember the bio-individuality rules. I always say, you do you. If that works for you, that's great. The other big one is dairy. Um, Also very triggering. You know, women don't want to be told, don't eat that cheese, don't eat the ice cream. But then they pull out of their diets and they're like, oh, there's the five pounds I couldn't get rid of. (laughs) I mean, it's happened to so many women. We call it affectionately the five pound dairy. But again, you have to decide, like, if you can't moderate, eliminate. And that's kind of my standard mantra. You know that you don't have a problem with a particular kind of food if you can moderate it. If you can't moderate, then you eliminate. Like, I love dark chocolate. That's like my one big vice. 
And I have no issues moderating dark chocolate, thank goodness, <laughs> because there's not a lot of other stuff to get um, in trouble over. But I think it's important for women to just lean into the cues their bodies are telling them. Well, let's touch on clean fasting. What it, what's clean fasting? Clean. So this is a, a principle that I think is really important and one that I embrace. Clean fasting really talks about foods that are not going to invoke an insulin response or beverages. I really should say it's not food. So things like plain coffee, bitter tea, bitter means bitter. It is not celestial seasonings, apple, cinnamon, spice, or things that have natural flavors. Um, Black tea, green tea are two great examples. Or then just drinking water with unflavored electrolytes during your fasted state. Now, during your feeding window, you can choose to consume whatever you want to consume. But I do like people to understand and to embrace, at least start off with really great habits when it comes to fasting. Those kinds of habits can be a huge differentiator. I'm sure you probably have clients or people that connect with you that say, oh, fasting doesn't work for me. But then you start looking at their food diary and they're having two fatty coffees a day. They're drinking soda in between their meals. And I'm like, listen, the worst thing you can do is drink your calories. Like just for me personally, I'm just a huge proponent of that. Now, if someone's coming from being, you know, a couch potato eating a standard American diet, then they may very well be able to, you know, do what I refer to affectionately as, you know, it's like putting train wheels on a bike. Like, okay, so you're you're struggling to get from, you know, really being carbohydrate dependent, you know, removing snacks, you know, getting to a point where you're restructuring your meals and you're really struggling to get from breakfast to lunch. And maybe having some MC2 oil in your coffee or your tea is going to allow you to not be starving for so many hours. So what did you say? What was the oil again that you used? MCT oil. So medium chain triglycerides. MCT oil is a type of caprylic acid. Um, My favorite is the C8 because it's the purest form, but that is definitely something that people can add. It isn't insulinemic. So things like butter. Um, I know people love fatty coffees, but I remind them like butter is technically insulinemic. So you're going to evoke an insulin response to at least a certain degree, but MCT oil is processed very differently than other types of fats. And um, I always recommend that people go low and slow because MCT oil um, in the wrong amount can cause what Dave Asprey affectionately refers to as disaster pants, which no one wants. Um, I can only tolerate about a teaspoon of it. But I have, you know, friends of mine, you know, big guys that can handle two or three tablespoons and they're fine, but start low and slow. And the other thing to remember is when you're adding fats to a beverage, the understanding that it's still, it's, you're still consuming food. You're still like consuming calories. And a lot of people consume a couple fatty, fatty beverages a day. And, and that can add up. If you're trying to change body composition or lose weight, those liquid calories, you really have to be honest with yourself about. Mm-hmm. How about, um, breaking a fast and that, I mean, and a lot of, I think, I think really the easiest way to break a fast is exactly what you just said. It's it's, it's the, the, you know, the cream, the creamer and the coffee, it's drinking something other than water. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, yeah. And I think a lot of people like have gotten so accustomed to adding like sugar and cream and butter and all sorts of things to their beverages that they don't really know that part of why coffee is beneficial, like plain, high quality, organic, non-mycotoxin laden coffee or high quality organic teas are are very beneficial because the bitter is related to the polyphenol content. There's, There's beneficial compounds in high quality coffee and those bitter teas that actually can increase fat oxidation and can, you know, potentiate a fast. And so I remind people that 
we as a society where where our our palates are very attuned to sweet, mm-hmm. but bitter is bitter is important because bitter. bitter is not going to evoke an insulin response. So when we talk about breaking a fast, it can be as simple as people unknowingly consuming cream or butter, or you know there are there are fit pros out there. They're like, it's okay if you eat less than fifty calories. And I'm like, well, a handful of grapes is still food, so you are breaking your fast as long as you understand that's yeah, what you're doing. Right. Um, I think that's important, but sometimes people unknowingly break their fast because they just don't know any better. They're eating supplements. Um, let me be clear. There are people who have to take medications on an empty stomach. I take thyroid medicines. That's the first thing I take in the morning. Um, if you have to take medication, you take the medication and you like, don't fixate over what's in the capsule or the pill you just took. You need to take your medication just accept that. But if there are supplements, when in doubt, leave it out. So if it's your, if it's branched chain amino acids, collagen peptides, those are protein. You need to take them in your feeding window. Mm-hmm. If you are um, consuming fat soluble vitamins, um, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, you take them during your feeding window. Whereas like things like magnesium, like as a rule, like a lot of minerals are generally okay. But my standard mantra is when in doubt, leave it out. But when you're looking to break a fast, like actually like what's the thing you're going to break a fast with? It depends on the person. Some people like to break their fast with bone broth. Some people like to have a very light protein meal with some carbohydrate. Uh, I always say protein and carbs or protein and fat. You never want to break a fast with a bunch of carbs. So I would never sit down and have like a big mango. (laughs) Um, And part of that is because you're going to get the greatest insulin response Mm -hmm. to carbohydrates. You'll get the least to fats, then protein then carbohydrates. So protein is always going to buffer that insulin response and help with satiety. And I think that's important for people to know that, you know, I I see, I'm always very curious to see what people choose to share on social media as it pertains to fasting. And I remind people, like, if you're really trying to dial in on health issues or body composition or lose weight, you have to be diligent, like get those good habits established in the beginning so that you're going to have the greatest success as opposed to the people that kind of go into fasting, eating Cheetos and McDonald's, and they wonder why they're still inflamed and can't lose weight or, you know, their, their, you know, blood work hasn't improved or their sleep's still terrible. I'm like, well, it's equally important what we choose to eat in our feeding window as well. Absolutely. That's such a great point. Cause then I think a lot of people think, Oh, I'm just going to fast. I'm just going to eat during these windows. It doesn't really matter what I eat. I'm just going to eat less but in these windows and I'm fine. And that's not, that's not the way it works. Okay. So what are some signs that people can look for if they are fasting and it's not working well for them? Yeah. I think that's a great question and a really important one. So first and foremost, if you're still in your peak fertile years or in perimenopause, if your cycle goes away, I always say if it's wonky for a cycle, it should maybe a little lighter, maybe a little heavier. I don't worry about that, but if it goes away entirely and you're not pregnant, that could be a sign that the communication between your brain and your ovaries is saying, we're in a famine, we're not getting enough nutrients, it's time to shut things down. So changes in your menstrual cycle that last more than one or two cycles, number one. Um, number two is sleep. Like if your sleep quality, if you're sleeping really well, and then all of a sudden you start fasting and your sleep is terrible, you're waking up in the middle of the night, you're hungry, um, you're just not feeling good. Um, number three, energy issues. Like if you were otherwise like getting out of bed and feeling like you had tons of energy and then all of a sudden you're dragging, definitely a sign it might not be working well for you. And I think it just comes down to, you know, overall, like your overall sense in your body, like how are your cravings? Like for some people not eating as frequently can be very triggering. You know, there's 
Um, we have our lizard brand, the amygdala. Um, when the amygdala thinks that there's food scarcity in some people, it can be very triggering and it'll cause an override of their prefrontal cortex and then they can't make good decisions and then they want to eat all the things. So I remind people, if you're having like incredible food cravings, if you're feeling like you want to eat everything and anything, then you break your fast earlier. That would be step number one. Number two is making sure you're getting enough good quality food in during your feeding window. You know, sometimes people overeat on that first meal and then they're not hungry for more food. And so it becomes this balance of trying to find, do we break your first meal into two meals? You know, what do we need to do to kind of reinvestigate that? But those are, those are some of the big, the big issues that will come up, um, you know, sleep, energy, menstrual cycle changes. Um, obviously I've read online of women who get angry in the latter stages of perimenopause and like perimenopause and, and fasting don't go together because I just stopped getting my period. And I'm like, well, if you're 51 years old and you stop getting your menstrual period and coincidentally you started fasting, the average woman goes through menopause at age 51. So there are people that will go through younger. There are people that will go through older, may not have anything to do with fasting, might've just been your time. And I do find that when women start fasting in perimenopause in particular, they generally have less hot flashes, they have less side effects. And so that can be, you know, the impetus to kind of continue, even if they're doing it five days a week, they just feel so much better. Um, I've, I've had women who've been 10 years into menopause that start fasting and all of a sudden they're losing, you know, the 10 pounds of menopause weight they could never get rid of. And all of a sudden all their hot flashes have calmed down. So I, th I think those are the things I typically look at as, as things I want to watch for really carefully. Well, I want to touch on your book. So your book, it comes out, uh, March 15th. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So your book is intermittent fasting transformation. Talk about your book for a few minutes and what our listeners will get from this book. It looks amazing. Oh, thank you. No, this book is really a labor of love. It's, you know, six years worth of work. Um, not just with myself with intermittent fasting, but working with thousands of women. So it talks a little bit about my story, which we kind of briefly touched on. It dives into the hormones, it dives into the physiology of what changes in the body down to mitochondrial functioning, but it's written in a way that's very accessible. Um, we dive into a 45 day program called IF 45. This is really what I've created. You know, I, I was telling someone on another podcast that, you know, how, how did I decide 45 days is the right amount of time. And I said, well, 60 days was too long and 30 was too short. And so 45 was like the perfect in the middle kind of um, concept. And so there's three separate phases in the program. There's an induction phase. There's a phase where you kind of deep dive into fasting. And then there's a whole um, last part of the, um, the program is doing a lot of challenges. Obviously these are challenges that you can do to kind of, you know, cure boredom. You know, some people like to be incentivized to do things to challenge their bodies beyond beyond the average, you know, 16, eight. And then there is, there are 50 amazing recipes in the, in the back of the book. It's one of my favorite chefs, um, Beth Lipton, who's just so incredibly talented. We made recipes that are accessible, that are flavorful and easy. Uh, Cause I'm sure I'm like most other women. I don't have hours and hours and hours to be cooking every day. In fact, we do a lot of food prep twice a week. And that usually will get us from like Sunday to Wednesday if we're lucky. And then we do more food prep Wednesday to Saturday. Um, having two teenagers, it's uh, it's a constant battle, but it's the book that every woman needs. 
And it's the book that I wish I had had before I went through perimenopause. So I would have known what to expect, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely written for women in their peak fertile years, women in perimenopause and menopause. And it gives you all sorts of variations and things to look out for. Some of the things we've kind of talked about today, but it's really a labor of love. So it's a book about fasting for women written by a woman. And certainly it's a, like I said, it's really my life's work. And one of the things that touches on is slowing down the aging process, which naturally would happen if you're taking care of your body, you're fueling it the right way, you're getting better sleep and you're conditioning yourself to do things in a different way than maybe you've done it. You've done it before. I mean, who, who doesn't want to learn how to slow down the aging process? And we do age ourselves so much with the things that we're doing to abuse our body. And we don't even realize it's abuse. Yeah. Well, because we go back to the same thing, like what you can get away with in your 20s and 30s, it just starts to shift and change as we get older. And so, you know, based on a lot of research, we know whether it's lab animals or looking at different cultures of people in the world, we know that people that are eating less food are actually living longer. It's almost like eating with the degree of frequency that we've been instructed to eat, you know, meals with snacks, et cetera, is aging us. It's, we're more, we're more inflamed. There's more oxidative stress. Um, there's more metabolic inflexibility. And so we wouldn't be here as a species if fasting wasn't incorporated into our lifestyle for a millennium. I mean, fasting was incorporated in all the major religions. And so I, I tell people it's not new or novel. It dates back to biblical times And I think it's really important for people to understand that, that it's not just something that popped up 10 years ago. It's really been around for a long time. Well, I know that, you know, evolution happens and, and, and we change as we evolve as human beings and we do things differently than we did a hundred years ago, but Mm -hmm. always go back to like, you think of the homo sapiens and Mm -hmm. even the, the native American Indians. I mean, they didn't have you know, Trader Joe's, they didn't have a McDonald's drive through They had to hunt and they had to fish for their food. They would go for time periods with no, with no food, with no food. And I mean, we're just constantly, we just have it our, at our disposal and our body does not need that. And it probably doesn't even want it. We're just conditioning to, to feeding it. But that's kind of, that's always think about that. Like we're not created to eat all the time. We're just not. No. No. And there's so many, I mean, I talk about this in the book. There's a lot of physiologic things that happen in the body when we're eating less frequently. Um, And I talk about digestive rest. I talk about the migrating motor complex, but it's when our body is optimized, our digestive system can function the way it's supposed to. Our blood sugar can be optimized. Our insulin levels will be lower. You know, all these things that we in our modern kind of hedonistic culture where we can get anything at any time. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, back in other cultures and even a hundred years ago, um, you know, prior to refrigeration, I mean, people really, there was food scarcity was a normal occurrence. And so now we have food abundance and in a lot of ways it's food like substances and we're not healthier for it. So I, I think that, it's really critically important. It's really become a public health threat that we have to take better care of ourselves. And this is one strategy amongst many that can help women take better care of themselves. Well, you are amazing. This podcast interview was so fascinating and so needed and you're so relatable. You're so awesome. I know this book is going to be a huge success and I can't wait to tell people about it. I want to, I want to read it myself. So it comes out March 15th. Where can they get this book? 
Yeah. So intermittent fasting transformation, I have 45, you can get on Amazon, Barnes and Noble target or your local bookstores. The really cool thing is that up until publication date, there are a slew of pre-sale bonuses, including my clean and 14 program. There are bonus recipes and I'm doing a masterclass on March 10th that will only be available for people that have bought the book ahead of time. So I'm really, really excited. And I'm going to be deep diving into some topics I get asked about a lot. We're just really very grateful. My team and I were and my family as well. We're just really grateful. We've gotten such a tremendous um, response to the book. And I hope that some of your listeners will take advantage of those pre-sale bonuses that will be available only up until publication date. Absolutely. For sure. Well, we will have to do this again. I'm sure you've got a couple more books in you somewhere. <laughs> you're like, I don't know. This was six years of work. I, this, this is amazing, but you're, you're such a blessing. And again, you're so relatable and you're so smart. And the way you explain things is it's, I think this concept can be overwhelming to people and the yes. way you lay it out there. It's just, it seems doable. Thank you. Thank you. It's really been an honor to connect with you today and connect with your listeners. Thank you. We will do this again soon. If you thought today rocked, subscribe to the Meg Rock Show podcast, leave a review and let me know what your takeaway was. All of my social is linked in the show notes. Screenshot this episode and tag me on Instagram at the Meg Rock. For more info on me and to take my quiz to find out what energy blocks you have in your life and in your home, and maybe even coaching, go to manifestingmarge.com. Repeat after me, I am a powerful, loving, radiant, abundant, badass warrior goddess. I am here to rock out this lifetime. It doesn't serve me or the world to play small. I am worthy of all that I desire. See you in the next episode. The Meg Rock Show podcast and all content created by Manifesting Marge LLC is created for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified health provider with any questions you may have for a medical condition or concern. Meg Schwarzrock is not a doctor or a therapist.